Good evening, good afternoon. Thank you for joining everybody. This is our second series of All Things Global powered by Vistatech with Global Economist David Rosenberg. Thank you everybody for joining today. Uh, I'm Suzanne Frank and I'll be your host. I'm Laura Daly, I'll be your host. And we're gonna kick off right away uh, having some questions for David Rosenberg who will be is the president and chief economist uh, of Rosenberg and Associates, Research and Associates, I should say. So David, our first out of the box kind of discussion that we'd like to have with you, could, could you tell us a little bit about your journey to getting involved with economics? How did that begin for you? Oh boy. Well, you know what, what most people don't know is that when I was in high school in grade 11, uh, I actually uh, took economics uh, and on the very first day when I came home, uh, my father said to me, uh, so how was your first class of economics? I said, oh, well, dad, it was uh, really great. You know, uh, we learned about um, uh, the small open economy uh, with no government. My father looked at me incredulously and said, did you say no government? He says, let me show you something, son. So he, uh, he showed me his uh, pay stub and you see, you see this 50% of my paycheck in this little corner? I go, yeah. He says, well, that's going to the government. He says, maybe you should think of taking something a little more practical. So I said, uh, okay. And I actually dropped economics in high school. Really? And, when I, and when I went to the University of Toronto, 1979, uh, I actually uh, went into the Bachelor of Commerce program. I wanted to become an accountant. Uh, and um, don't ask me why. And then by December 1979, uh, halfway through the first year, I was doing well in everything, except the one subject that you actually need to become an accountant, which was financial accounting. And not only was I failing miserably, I had the worst grade in the class and uh, I couldn't figure it out. I, I couldn't get the T accounts for anybody that knows anything about accounting. And I remember going to Gary Lee, Professor Lee, uh, who, uh, you know, back then they had the accountants uh, do the uh, uh, tutorials and uh, teaching. Uh, he was at Arthur Anderson, if you remember that firm. I said, Mr. Lee, what's wrong? I can't, what's going on with me? He says, Dave, he says, you just have problems balancing the T accounts. So I said, well, what do you advise your students who can't balance the books? He says, oh, I tell them to go in economics. So I went, in, I went into economics and, um, you know, the reality is that it combines so much. It combines, well, obviously uh, economics is a study of behavior. Uh, so sociology, psychology, uh, math, uh, statistics, you have to know how to write and communicate. Uh, and of course, uh, my favorite subject was history. And you cannot be an effective economist without knowing history and what's different and what's the same. Uh, and so it just combined uh, everything that I loved. It was just became a passion. Uh, so all those inputs, uh, I think just um, matched uh, my DNA. And so uh, jack of all trades, master of none. Um, but that's really how I fell into it uh, at the university level. Uh, and then, uh, you know, everything just took off from there. But, you know, if you, if you enjoy uh, doing, uh, social research that combines finance uh, and uh, uh, and sociology and uh, psychology uh, and uh, you like to write because uh, you have to be able to communicate your ideas to really be effective. I guess I would say that in almost any field. And that's basically, you know, it's not, uh, I, I got to tell you, it's not that, um, it's not that I found economics. It's, it, it found me. Interesting, very interesting. Um, so you, I see you all over the talk circuit these days. There's a lot of kerfuffle around, around your ideas, around economic thoughts. And I guess the most interesting thing that really kind of captured me when I discovered you was I was listening to one of your uh, podcasts on the homebody economy. Mm -hmm. And particularly in this kind of new normal that we're all living in with COVID, 
Um, can you talk a little bit about what led you to coin the phrase the homebody economy and kind of what, your, what was your thinking on that when you kind of came up with that? Because there's been a lot of um, promotion around that. Right. Well, I guess, you know, you always have to have in this business uh, some colloquial term uh, so that people, you know, will, uh, will remember it. Uh, and so I just personalized it because uh, during this pandemic and in the, in the lead up to the lockdown and during the lockdown, and then, of course, just the, the notion that uh, getting into crowds uh, as a risk uh, of a certain um, uh, medical outcome for yourself, uh, it got me thinking about how are people, you know, spending uh, their time. And so, look, uh, uh, I became a homebody uh, in the sense that uh, during this period that we've all been confined to, to varying degrees, uh, I mean, it's not everybody, but it's become a significant portion of the population uh, that we are spending more time cocooning. Uh, and one of the, I guess you could say, silver linings uh, of the pandemic uh, is that we become a lot more self-reliant. Uh, and I do look, I feel sorry for the restaurants. Uh, you know, I, I love to eat out. I love to go to the bars. Uh, I'm, I'm also a social animal. Um, but uh, we've learned to do a lot of things uh, on our own and, and it shows through with the data. So when I talked about the homebody economy, uh, well, look at all of us right now. Uh, I, I mean, we're all basically doing this, you know, on a Zoom call, you know, from our homes. We've, we've changed the vast majority uh, of people. Uh, have changed their home into an office and wired their home into an office. Uh, you're taking a look right now at a massive secular shift taking place from multifamily housing to single family housing from the inner city to the suburban areas because the one thing that we have developed an appreciation of, especially for families, uh, that are cooped up or were cooped up on the 30th floor of an apartment building with no balcony. Imagine how horrible that must have been. Uh, so all of a sudden people are thinking, well, wow, how, how did we actually get into a, a home building boom in the context of a pandemic? Well, because there's a shift in preferences from condos and apartments towards uh, the bungalow in the burbs with a backyard. You see, I also love alliterations. Uh, <laughs> but, but on top of that, I was noticing in the data uh, things that were happening that are still happening, um, you know, because you, you get this rich data sources every month, you get the retail sales numbers, you get the consumer spending numbers, you know, people always say, well, you know, what does it mean for GDP? Uh, what does it mean? What's the Fed going to do on these numbers? But you know, you get you can get so granular looking at the data. And I love going into the weeds and and getting my, my hands dirty, you know, it's uh it's a passion of mine to go in to look at what are the trends beneath the trends? What's the story beneath the story? So all of a sudden in the context of uh, an environment where you know we're, we're actually saving a lot of money, uh, we're not traveling, uh, we're not going to the theme parks, we're not going to the movie theaters. Um, and so when people talk about, well, we've had a lot of government stimulus. Yes, that much is true, a lot of government stimulus. Um, but we've also, um, redirected our expenditures in some sense because we're saving so much money from not doing things, uh, you know, in, in those parts of the economy we're actually hurting, like restaurants, because we're not going out to restaurants. But but I was noticing stuff that was flying off the shelves, of course, flying off the shelves, we're all ordering it on Amazon. But cookbooks and bread makers, kitchen mm -hmm. appliances. Um, so we become a nation of cooks all of a sudden. So I don't even know. I don't even know. Look, I imagine that we will at some point get out and go out and have a great meal at a restaurant. We'll all do that. But I reckon that we'll be doing that a lot less. Okay. Because we all learned how to make lasagna in our own. <laughs> and so, but um, uh, so a lot of that, we become homebodies, but we become, you see, again, looking at the silver lining in this dark cloud, we become a lot more self-reliant. Uh, I'm noticing, for example, so, I mentioned bread makers. I mentioned uh, kitchen appliances, um, sewing machines, uh, you know, uh, clothing repair, upholstery repair, uh, off the charts. So uh, all of a sudden, we're well, we're saving money from not going to the laundromat because we don't have to go to the office and with our press shirts. Um, but we're spending money doing other things, and so we're doing a lot of repair. 
I'll tell you that uh, as much as we're talking about how, for example, auto sales have been very strong. Why is that? Is because now we're vacationing by vehicle as opposed to by airplane for most people. So auto sales have done well. But before the auto sales picked up, even during the period when we had the lockdown phase, uh, auto parts, yeah. auto parts were booming. And so people were learning, you know, I guess how to change their own oil. Uh, and take a look what's happening, for example, home renovation, remodeling, and not just indoors, but also outdoors in a budding bull market. So you see, when I see the home body economy, it's because the home has become so many other things mm-hmm. um, coming out of this pandemic. Uh, you know, another thing, for example, I would just say that was been booming is gardening supplies. Have you noticed that gardening supplies? And this mm-hmm. happened after in the aftermath of World War II. Do you remember they called them victory gardens? But also yeah. a big concern over the security of food supply in the future. And I can tell you, it's in the data, but I also know tons of people that all of a sudden coming out of the pandemic have developed a green thumb. Yeah. And so a lot of this stuff, you know, pets, pets, pet services. The And this is actually very interesting. There's a reference in the Fed's Beige Book two weeks ago from the San Fran Fed on the surge in pet uh, pet buying, pet services, because of course, you know, uh, for a lot of people who are on their own, uh, what, what a great companion than to have say a dog or a cat. Uh, that's actually, and that's in the data, that's actually booming. So there's a lot of trends that didn't exist before the COVID. Uh, there's stuff that's in a clear downtrend. We know what those are in the entertainment, leisure, travel, tourism. But there's other areas that actually maybe in a perverse way uh, have benefited. And it's all related to living and working in the home. Yeah, Very interesting. And I know Laura's going to ask a question. And I'm sorry, Laura, I'm going to do an unscheduled follow-up. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David, one thing that I'm curious about is you had mentioned the restaurants and how we're all learning to cook. Even myself, which is shocking. But one thing I learned from the cooking is it saves me so much money. So now with this lesson, my question for you is, do you think consumers are seeing that so much of what we're doing on our own and our self-sufficiency is being easy on our pocketbook that we may not go back in full force the way we were before to those things? Yeah, 100%. And you know, I've been writing about this that, um, look, uh, I'll make no mistake. I mean, there's the airlines are hurting, the restaurants are hurting uh, tourism, uh, a lot of things in the service, consumer service industry. And so uh, whether it's by uh, fiat, you know, look what's happening in Europe right now where we're back to at least partial lockdowns. I'm not saying we're going back into lockdowns uh, in the United States. Uh, What I will say is this much, Uh, you know, everybody talks about the third quarter we had a 33% increase in GDP at an annual rate. Of course, that became a, a very big slogan for the Republicans lead up to the election. And it came off a minus 31% in the second quarter detonation. Of course, that was the lockdowns. But before the second quarter, we had the first quarter. And first quarter GDP was negative 5%. Mm. And consumer spending in the, fir- in the first quarter, consumer spending was negative 6% in annual rate tell you, consumer spending in the first quarter uh, was weaker or as weak as anything we saw in the Great Recession of 08 and 09. And that was before the lockdowns because people naturally became nervous with the pandemic and started to pull back on their own consumption patterns before they were told to by the government. Um, So I think you're 100% right. Uh, A lot of these changes going forward are are, are more permanent uh, and I don't think are temporary. Uh, these are true secular changes. When you look at the data, it's startling. You're right. We we saved actually the numbers are incredible. Uh, that since February, when the pandemic really started to hit, as a country, we've actually saved, in quotes, saved, seven hundred billion dollars wow. from not like from domestic services. That's in consumer spending. Well, that's, you know, that could be your nanny. It could be your housekeeper. Mm-hmm. Way down. Your travel budget, way down. Restaurants, way down. Every form of travel is way down. 
you're not spending money at the movies. Okay, well, you're watching Netflix instead. But, you know, the reality is that you're right, that is unleashed, you know, in a perverse way, you know, somebody's loss of somebody's gain. We have taken a lot of that money from the restaurants and bought cooking appliances and, uh, um, and ancillaries uh, as a substitute. We've gone from, eating, from, from, from going to the movies and entertainment uh, you know, towards Netflix, you know, as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've gone from spending money on, on travel uh, towards remodeling the house and rewiring the house to become your home office. So yeah, there's been powerful, I guess, I guess it's maybe wrong, uh, maybe un- insensitive to call it stimulus. It's just coming out of spending you would have done somewhere else. But you see, there's going to be some other longer-term consequences here because let's take a look, for example, uh, what's been hurting really badly? Gym memberships, right? But people still want to exercise. What do they do? They buy these Peloton bikes. I don't know about you. I didn't know what a Peloton bike was before the pandemic. I knew what Zoom was. I just never used it. Mm-hmm. Now I use it every day. Mm-hmm. But, but you buy a Peloton, but you see your gym membership, you're paying it every year. You're going three, four, five times to the gym or you're paying your trainer. You're going to the gym all the time. Uh, that's a recurring. That's a recurring source of economic activity. Uh, you buy a Peloton bike. That's it. You're buying a bike. You know that's it. Um, you know now people are going to be vacationing in their backyard. That's the new future. Um, but you know you go on trips all the time with your family if you can. You go on trips. You go on trips. It's a recurring source of economic activity in the services industry. But you only remodel your backyard once right? And then it's done. So there's a lot of the spending we're talking about in the consumer durable goods industry, let's call it. That's very good news for them, but it's basically one and done. Uh, Whereas the services industry is a lot more perpetual. uh, And that's what's really going to be changing. The dynamics of the economy are going to be changing as a result, because a lot of the spending that we've done to remodel the house, so on and so forth, or to move out of your condo to a single family home in the suburbs. I mean, you do that once in a 10 or 20 or maybe even 30 years. Uh, So in terms of what it means for economic mobility, vitality, there's going to be a lot of changes in the future coming out of this as well. Very interesting where it affects some and less others. So the dynamic is interesting. Like, okay, durable goods are going doing well, but services industry are more perpetual. So go ahead, Laura. Yes, and along those lines, I'm very curious about your ideas around how this, what does this look like in global markets? Do you anticipate any trends in particular emerging markets or changing emerging markets because of all this? Who's in in general categories or in specific categories? How are how are different markets going to behave? Do you think? Well, I mean, um, we're talking about different markets, and even when you talk about emerging markets. Uh, you know, it's like talking about people will ask me, what's your view on healthcare? Well, you know, it's not a homogeneous market um, and emerging markets are not a homogeneous market. What uh, I'll say is this, broadly speaking, I, I mean, emerging markets, I mean, I, I, I can't really talk about um, Chile and Peru and, and Venezuela as emerging markets the same way I would talk about, you know, Taiwan and Singapore and China. Uh, I am actually very bullish on Asia, very bullish on Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, and that includes China. It's very controversial. Um, everybody's very angry at China. Uh, everybody would like to put China in a, some sort of penalty box, but you can't, you're not going to, you know, cut your nose off to spite your face. The, that genie has been out of the bottle for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, these other parts, you see, this is the reality. Uh, and, and I'm not going to comment on my views on society. We have a type of society that uh, puts great value on liberty and freedom, uh, individual freedoms. Uh, and uh, we are going to be living, until there's a vaccine or some therapeutic, we're going to be living in North America and in the Western world with the pandemic uh, a lot longer than they will. In Asia, where the populations are more subservient, uh, you know, they will listen and they will stay locked down. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, in China, they have a totalitarian regime uh, where you lock down or else. But what do they have in China? They have like what, 120 cases. They, mm-hmm. They've 
the, the, the irony of the ironies is that the country that was at the epicenter of the pandemic is one that emerged the first. Um, you know, they're going to be the only country in the world. China will be the only country in the world. You know, wh whether you like it or not, and, and I say this to people and they block their ears. They don't want to hear it. You know, but you have to hear it. Chinese economy is going to be about the only economy in the world that's going to have positive growth this year in the mm -hmm. context of a global pandemic. Uh, and the IMF is saying that their economy is going to accelerate to over 8% growth next year. People say to me, how is that possible in China? Because we know from the one-child policy that their demographics are starting to look a little like Japan. You take a look mm -hmm. at the productivity. See, there's two sources of growth on the supply side in the economy. Well, there's really three. Uh, there's labor uh, and there's capital and there's land. Well, land is fixed. Uh, labor is a negative in most parts of the world um, at the aging demographics. But capital is all about productivity. And 100% of Chinese growth is in productivity. They have... They have the fastest productivity in the world. They have the best infrastructure in the world. Uh, I mean, in America, we talk about an infrastructure package. We need infrastructure stimulus. We keep hearing that over and over again. Uh, and it's more almost of a political gimmick uh, than it is something that's real. Uh, China's got the best infrastructure, transportation, communication, and they're the leader in 5G. Uh, and, um, and they did not blow their brains out on fiscal stimulus because they didn't have to. They beat the pandemic early. Uh, and um, they didn't actually blow their brains out on monetary policy. They're actually one of the only countries in the world where their interest rate <laughs> is not only positive, it's more than 3%. So if they had to actually stimulate monetary policy, they could do it. So I would say, and of course, you look, you're talking about other countries, uh, whether it's Korea, uh, Thailand, Taiwan. Uh, I'd say that Asia to me, uh, has already been a growth leader for a long time. That's not something new, but that's going to accelerate. And I think that China, and it's gonna be very interesting from a geopolitical standpoint, because when you look at the numbers and you look at the forecast, uh, you'll see that in the next 10 years, China will supplant the United States as the largest GDP mm -hmm. on the planet. And the US has not seen its economic hegemony uh, sacrificed since 1871. This is going to be something new for all of us. Anybody who's been born in the past 100 years or more has not seen America challenge this much from an economic standpoint. Uh, this will create all sorts of uh, angst and anxiety. Uh, and I don't really know how China can actually ever be, uh, this can't be reversed, how it gets contained remains to be seen. Uh, but I'd say that, um, that when you're taking a look, especially in the savings rates in these countries, they're very high. If you're really going to be making a call on the consumer globally, uh, I think you, it's, it's what I wrote, I wrote, I wrote this today. Once again, you got to attach something that people remember. Uh, my report today said, go East young man and woman. Mm. So I'd say that that's where, the, that's where the growth is going to be. They, they, they've licked the pandemic. Uh, they've got much stronger balance sheets. Yes, it's true. They have much stronger balance sheets, even in China. Uh, they've got tremendous productivity growth. And, uh, and what about consumer behavior? Are they in the same categories as here in gardening? And what's your take on that? What kind of um, categories do you see growth in, in those particular markets? Well, uh, no, I, 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 I think that, I think that if you're, I think you're going to find that um, there's going to be a lot more in the way of, of more cyclical spending and not really uh, a home, the home body, the home body economy is for those economies and mostly in the Western world. Right. Uh, where we still live with the fear of the pandemic uh, or you have these recurring lockdowns and, and, um, and I'm not saying the U S will go into lockdown mode again, that politically could be suicide to do. Um, but I said the point I made about the first quarter was that even before the lockdowns, people became nervous and they became homebodies before the lockdown. Uh, in Asia, I think you're going to find, because the homebody economy is really, uh, you know, uh, an economy that, uh, uh, you know, where, where people are 
are a little more defensive uh, in nature. Uh, you know, we're basically buying things that we need, not necessarily what we want. Yeah. Uh, and so at a lot of, I mean, a, a lot of what we want isn't even available. Uh, I mean, you know, in, in a lot of cities, you can't even go to a, an NFL game. Uh, but I think in Asia, you can go to a lot of sporting events. In, in Asia, um, restaurants aren't closed down. Uh, bars aren't closed down. So I think that if you're looking for something less defensive uh, from the consumer, something more broadly based vitality that is also more cyclical, um, that's where you wanna, you're going to want to go. You're going to want to basically, uh, like, I don't know so much about, I mean, if you're going to buy the, the airlines in the United States, you're making a bet on, is a vaccine coming soon? Uh, or you're making a bet, is the government going to give a bailout to the airline industry? If you're buying, um, say, any airline in Asia, you're not making that decision, okay? Uh, because um, they've licked the pandemic. So it's a, I, I think that if you're a global investor or your global business, and you're looking as to where the toehold is uh, for something much more broadly based from a consumer standpoint, uh, something that is beyond the home body, uh, Asia is going to be a very good place to be. Thank you, David. I, I know we have a lot of people in, the, in our VIP audience here who have questions, and I know that we're, they're going to start with their name and their the company that they represent, and they might even use the hand gestures that we learned in our last session last month. I have Sasha here next, and then Nicole. <laughs> Did I do the hand gesture right? Yes, very good. My professor taught me. <laughs> David, absolutely a pleasure. Uh, just such great insight, and thank you for being with us today. Um, just because so many of us are stewards of brands, can you give us some examples of the organizations that have navigated this effectively, whether that's in the home appliances sector or in other factors that you brought up, auto, auto parts? I don't know, some of the examples that might have come from, from your research where organizations have stepped up and, and navigated this effectively. Right. Well, look, I, I touched on this, I think, at the beginning. Uh, but I, I think that we really have to emphasize with exclamation marks, uh, you know, how the world has changed in the past six months. So what we know is that social distancing is now the rule. Uh, working from home is now encouraged when possible. Uh, the movie theaters are half empty, you know, and attending school now means opening up a laptop at home for a lot of students. So, you know, what I'm thinking about when you're talking about brands, it's what we talked about earlier. It's basically, you know, companies that can bring us a taste of our previous lives, uh, you know, like, like Zoom. L look at Zoom. Zoom has gone from a business-centric obscurity uh, to a widespread adoption uh, of a work-home reality. Uh, so, we have that. I, you know, I mentioned uh, Peloton before. Uh, it's a company I never heard of previously. It, you know, it's basically replaced gym memberships uh, by offering people stationary bikes at home. Uh, and then, you know, you have shares of tech titans. You have Apple. You have Microsoft. You have Amazon. Um, you have Alphabet. Uh, you know, why have they all done well this year? Uh, is because these companies have actually benefited uh, from the pandemic. Now, you know, we can talk about, you know, the degree of concentration there is in the stock market. We can talk about, uh, you know, their, their valuation levels, uh, which are very extreme. Um, but I think that the point is that when we're taking a look at uh, these particular companies, they once again, they cater to um, this period of working from home as being a much more dominant force. So I would say that, you know, when you're talking about brands, uh, I would say that, look, anything that caters to the home body economy, um, in, whether it's in food products, uh, and you've seen that, you've seen a lot of the brand names, um, cleaning supplies, uh, you know, for example, just take a look at, uh, you know, I don't know what people are taking Clorox for, uh, hopefully it's for the right reason, um, but their sales, we just got their numbers the other day, went through the roof. Um, but I'd say that, um, you know, food products have been a, a, a really a big winner here since we're eating at home more. Uh, and I think that you've seen a big shift as well towards, you know, towards comfort food. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to get in specific names. Um, but you can imagine, you know, who those would be. But I'd say I that. And cheese. Exactly. Uh, or <laughs> peanut butter or cookies. 
Uh, look, a lot of this stuff, I'm telling you, when, you, when, you, when you're taking a look at how much food, we, we, you know, especially, you know, we, we bought enough food for the next three years. Uh, and of course, part of that was because people thought this might be the Black Plague and we're going to stock up uh, as if it's a war. Look, the one thing that the president said, uh, um, well, we don't know which president yet, but President Trump said we're, we're fighting an invisible enemy and uh, 100% true. But I'd say, look, the, the implications, more broadly speaking, for uh, internet infrastructure, computer hardware, video conferencing, you know, like we're doing now, um, you know, we're talking about brands, uh, I'd say that in technology, uh, the one thing I've been telling, you know, uh, my clients is that um, these stocks quite right have become extremely expensive. Um, but there's uh, areas in mid cap and small cap that have been largely ignored uh, that, um, you know, that you can look at, uh, you know, I, I was saying before, you know, when we talk about the consumer, um, you know, we still have, we, the, in the US, we have a 14% savings rate. Um, now, look, it got as high as 33%. Um, the government stuffed everybody's uh, wallets with cash uh, to offset the income loss from the employment decline that we had. And we had the savings rate go up to 33%. Uh, in the second quarter, because there was nowhere to really spend that, you know, outside of delivery services. Uh, but the savings rate has gone down to 14%, but it might level off there. Historically, the US personal savings rate was around 7%. It's double that right now. And that might be the new steady state. So what I've been saying is, is we're into an era, I think of elevated personal savings rates. Look, it can't be lost on anybody that we went into this situation, and this was really striking, where over half of the households in the country did not have enough savings. They did not have enough cash on hand to get through three months of idle activity. That's incredible, especially when you consider that we came into this with a 3.5% unemployment rate, the lowest in 50 years. We didn't have enough savings. Savings is now going to be a lot more sacrosanct. And it means spending is going to be um, a lot more selective than it's been in the past. Um, but again, you know, when we're talking about which brands, it's really think about uh, what it is that we need. Think of, so I'm, I'm thinking consumer staples. Uh, I am thinking healthcare. I'm thinking anything related to e-commerce, cloud services. I said before, I'll emphasize that wiring up your home to become your new office. These are all in budding new secular growth phases. Uh, brand names, think of the brand names. Delivery services, well, they become an essential here. A budding bull market right there for who? Well, for Amazon, which is so obvious, but I would say any business model that copies it. So you tack on grocery chains. Grocery chains with what? Grocery chains with online services come out of this a big winner. So the shifting behavior that is already telling me, it's already taking place, tells me that you want to be involved in areas of technology, consumer staples, which largely includes food products. And there's other areas of the market too. Uh, I'd say healthcare. I mentioned big tech. They've become essentials. And that's what I'm talking about um, within the context of North America. So I'm not talking about in the context of Asia, where I think it will be a lot more cyclical in nature. I think you can buy travel and tourism and outdoor recreational companies in Asia. But I'm talking about in the confines of North America, you want to focus on the brand name retail companies, consumer companies that cater to essentials. Essentials. Focus on what we need, not what we want. So uh, I would say... Microsoft in that respect. I'd say Microsoft has become a utility and it's been re-rated in its equity price to become a utility. I think one could easily argue that Amazon has become a utility. I think you could argue that Google has become a utility. And it's also apparent to me uh, that you want to also be focused on healthcare. Because as an economist, you're always looking at areas of the economy over the years that were over-invested or underinvested. You know, we all knew we were massively overinvested in technology in 2000, massively overinvested in residential real estate. 
back in 2006, 2007. And it seems very clear to me that healthcare has become a very underinvested area uh, that I still think is going to become less regulated over time and something as well that we're looking at brand names. That's an area you want to focus on as well. Thank you so much. Somebody jump in with your question. I know you have one. State your name. Hey, Pedro, go ahead. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Gonna have to jump in there, Priscilla. Yes. David, great presentation. My name is Pedro Gomez. I'm with uh, Microsoft, one of the companies that you mentioned. Um, I wanted to pick your brains on um, automation and artificial intelligence. Where are the cusp of a, of a big secular change where machines and robots and, and routines actually are uh, close to becoming more intelligent and more productive than humans. So I wanted to hear what you have to say about that, both at the macro level, you know, what does this mean for the economy overall? And at the micro level, what does this mean for individual uh, workers? Well, look, this is a, a trend that is going to um, really accelerate uh, and it already was accelerating. Uh, I, I, and this is a, a product of the, the automation uh, and um, and we were talking about uh, you know robots that um, were beyond just areas of you know manufacturing automobiles and other products, but also uh, in services uh, and in retail services and in medical care uh, and gaining a lot of momentum. A lot of this is obviously cost saving. Uh, you have a robot. Uh, the robot works 24 seven. Uh, the robot doesn't take lunch breaks, doesn't take holidays, uh, doesn't talk back to your boss. Uh, and increasingly these robots, the robot technology has been doing a lot more tasks. I mean, to the point where people ask me, do you ever think a, a robot will do what you do? And I say, uh, probably, but they won't have the same sense of humor, but they'll probably be able to do what I do. So uh, the answer to the question is, is, is that uh, this sort of technology is going to accelerate and a lot of it is out of pure necessity. Uh, and this again is just human ingenuity realizing uh, that uh, population growth in most parts of the world, labor force growth is on decline. In Europe, now in China, uh, in America, uh, the only few countries in the world are we not seeing, courtesy of the aging baby boomers, uh, a rapid decline in the skilled labor force? Uh, and so we are needing to engage in this shift in what economists would call the capital labor ratio. Labor is going down, capital is going up. And what's happening as a supplant to the labor going down is robotic technology uh, as, a, as a response to that. And that's going to accelerate because the pandemic is going to accelerate that. And I'll tell you why. Uh, because what's happening from a structural standpoint uh, is that people are leaving the labor force. People are leaving the labor force. Either they want to or they're being pushed into it. Because let's face it, uh, we just we lost 20 million jobs in the peak of the pandemic crisis in the spring and early summer. Uh, we've made up for a part of that, but we're still 10 million jobs, 11 million jobs in the hole in the United States, as an example. Uh, and what I'm noticing in the data is that people are leaving the labor force. That's a real structural growth problem. Um, but companies still need that input in their production process. So I think that in terms of uh, offsets to labor, uh, insofar as what that means for AI, uh, what it means for other forms of technology that are labor saving, absolutely necessary because not only do we have a declining working age population from aging demographics, but it's being compounded by the pandemic's effect by having people actually willfully leave the labor market. Uh, so this trend is gonna accelerate in the coming years, more than it already has over the course of the past five or 10. It seems like it's advanced. I'm hearing 20 plus years of where we would have, like it's, we've had to jump 20 years ahead of time because of that. So very interesting question. Thank you, Pedro. Um, so we wanna get everybody in. So um, we're gonna try, David, if we may, to keep maybe the answers to 
about three minutes. They're all so interesting. We want to go a lot of places with this. We could do this for hours, but we are uh, down to the, about the 20 minute mark. Um, so with that said, who has a question? I have a question. Um, we are always looking, oh, sorry, Priscilla Noble, I'm with Adobe. Um, so we are in that tech sector and, and I would say doing fairly well in this, but I'm uh, looking at a question sort of uh, larger in a global brand sense. Um, I'm always looking at trends and at the end of last year, pre-pandemic, uh, Euromonitor International had come out with sort of trends of 2020 that they were looking at and saying that uh, one of the things they said was proudly local going global in that um, a lot of countries, you know, even ourselves, we tend to want to buy, you know, things made by people locally or food, et cetera. And that they were starting to see this happen, uh, not only in North America, but in other countries around the world. And that multinationals, uh, whether it be physical brands, manufacturing, or, uh, or as I took it, tech as well, because we look at trying to culturalize our products to some degree, um, would be expected to respond appropriately. Um, and begin to tailor their products perhaps uh, more locally around the world. Um, I think my question is in light of the pandemic, in light of the lockdown, in light of people being this global homebody, do you see, A, do you see this trend? Did you, do you think that was possibly true going into 2020? And B, do you see any changes in this, whether it accelerated or it pulled back? Right, well, you know, I would say that, um... Firstly, uh, I think that uh, we have to think about this uh, post-pandemic world uh, of being a world uh, where we're going to have reduced globalization. Uh, I think that's a natural outcome. Uh, I think actually that uh, we started seeing a lot of this with the trade wars of the past few years. Um, but I'd say a world of reduced globalization and I would agree with you that we are going to have more localized supply chains. Um, you know, that was one area where I think that Donald Trump and Joe Biden agreed on. In fact, they were stepping over themselves uh, to talk about, uh, you know, did the trade balance with China improve or not improve? Uh, you know, uh, did Donald Trump manage to bring manufacturing jobs home or not? I mean, a lot of that depends on what, <laughs> when you start the what, the, what your original time is uh, on those arguments, but you can see in the debates, um, in the debates, it wasn't, uh, you know, like it was with Hillary Clinton, uh, where she had actually just wrote a book on the benefits of free trade. Oops, didn't actually make a lot of friends in the Midwest. Uh, but uh, when Joe Biden says, uh, we have actually a buy America, I mean, you have one president saying, make America great again, again. Uh, and you have another one saying, buy America. What does buy America mean? Buy America means I'm not going to buy from uh, our neighbors, uh, whether it's in Canada or whether it's in Asia or whether it's in Europe, we're going to do this at home. We're going to localize supply chains. Um, so I think that that is basically going to be a, an accelerating trend, but not just in the United States. Um, but everywhere. So that's going to be uh, a major transformation. Uh, and I think it's going to be first and foremost in the areas that we need. Again, need not want. So semiconductors, uh, medical supplies, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and food security are going to be the main areas where there's going to be a lot more uh, of that um, self-reliance country by country globally. So yes, 100% true that coming out of this, more protectionism, uh, more populism, uh, I would say more isolationism is coming out of this in the future. Uh, all these trends are gonna gain more momentum globally. Thank you, David. Sorry, sorry, Suzanne, just one quick follow-up on that. Four major mm -hmm. brands then, do you see them who have been selling worldwide do you see them then trying to become or uh, position themselves more as a local brand in order to uh, meet that sort of more um, local view so that we still do sell internationally to some degree, but, but more focused on individual countries and, and needs there? Right. And, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, you, you want to focus on uh, companies uh, that are domestic 
they will be incentivized to produce domestically. These are, it's not like new companies are gonna be coming to the fore. These companies already exist, uh, but they will be basically uh, subsidized, uh, for example, to not produce what they're producing and in some sectors, not everywhere, to produce it at home and not abroad. They'll, so they'll re relocate their production facilities or they'll be um, given uh, subsidies uh, to sell into the home market as opposed to the foreign market. So that's how that's gonna play out. Thank you so much. Uh, Tim? Hi, yeah, David, thanks a lot for all this. Um, I've got a clarification question on- Speak up oh, a little bit, Tim, I'm sorry. I've got, a, thanks for all this, David. I've got a clarific, uh, clarification question around some of the data around the home body economy. Just yeah. General on this redirection of spend, it sounds like Asia is a bit of an outlier, but could you compare the US data to European data? Do they look similar? Um, is it, you know, right equal or is it considerably different or kind of in the middle? Thank you. Well, look, it's, it's hard to compare because every country did their own form of stimulus. Like it's impossible to compare uh, anything to the UK because in the UK, the government there uh, basically um, paid you subsidy, paid people to go out and eat. Um, they defray the government, the UK government for a period of time. If you took a look at the restaurant numbers in the UK, you'd be thinking there's a restaurant boom there because the government said they're going to pay whatever was 25 or 50% of every restaurant bill. We are going to pick up the tab for you. Well, that's over basically. So it's hard to compare. Um, you know, uh, a lot of it has to do with the pandemic. And there was a period of time there where Germany, Germany, I think, was just hit yesterday a new high for coronavirus cases. Three months ago, they were the poster child. So you see, it's like a sine wave; it's a roller coaster. Uh, right now, I would say that um, they're going to a they're going to a four week lockdown. So I would say that, uh, and you're already starting to see. We just got initial data, for example, in auto sales in Europe; they have fallen through the floor. Uh, and so um, you're going to find that a lot of it is like, you know, just, just, you know, follow, follow the virus. Uh, and I'd say that in the U.S. right now, the case count is obviously, uh, I think, at its highest level, certainly in, uh, since early August. I'm going to expect, and I'm seeing it in the high frequency data, and you're starting to see it in the open table reservations, and we're starting to see it in, uh, in the ATA data on, uh, on air traffic starting to see it in revenue per room in the hotel industry. I'd say in mid-October, things really started to cool off. I know people talk, oh, they say, oh, look at the, how great those retail sales numbers were. Yeah, okay, you're looking in the rearview mirror. The most up-to-date data in November are showing there's been a, a real decisive rolling over of consumer activity in the U.S. Why? Well, because of the pandemic. Now, what, what else really happened? I mean, it's true that we're all sitting on our hands and pins and needles. Are we going to get another stimulus package? Well, the stimulus package the, is, is basically an insurance policy because like I said before, there's still a lot of money sitting in people's pockets from the previous stimulus. Um, but I'd say that it's, it's, it's difficult to compare right now, but I'd say that the situation, given that there's a lockdown in Europe, uh, consumer spending is going, to, is going to detonate over the course of the next month. And then the question is going to be, uh, was four weeks enough? Take a look at Israel as a template. Uh, again, they were a poster child. They got their numbers down. They reopened. Oops, reopened too early. And then they had a lockdown for a couple of months. And so I'd say that it's, you know, when you're talking about comparing uh, intertemporally, it's very difficult because it all depends on on what's happening with the virus. And, and the U.S. is not going to lock down again like they did in Europe right now. But I'm going to say that looking at the numbers right now, people are getting more nervous. And we haven't even headed to the winter yet where we know the numbers are going to get a lot worse. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I'd say on top of that, I know I'm taking a long time to answer this question, but look, if we get an effective vaccine or therapeutic, and that, that's a huge, huge game changer. But I don't know when that's going to be. I'm not going to pretend that, that I know when that's going to be. But until then, uh, and especially if we don't get another round of stimulus in the U.S. in the next year, you can expect that the consumer is going to be extremely weak, going to be extremely weak. I'll make this point. Without, without the lagged impact or the fiscal stimulus, I mean, that was a gift that kept on giving. You have to understand, it was the biggest fiscal stimulus of all time. Biggest government transfer of income to the household sector of all time. And, and that carried through into the third quarter. If we didn't have that money, and whether or not you're the world's most ardent libertarian, 
without the stimulus, the lagged impact into the consumer in the third quarter, GDP would have been minus 6%, not plus 33. And if I was a Democrat on the hustings, I would have made that point. That's how important the stimulus is right now. It's, it's actually organically, organically, the economy is actually still in recession in the United States. You're absolutely right. The exit polls are showing that people weren't as concerned about the coronavirus as was some of the, the candidates were thinking, uh, Joe Biden in particular, it was more uh, the economy. So you're absolutely correct on that. Uh, do we have somebody else that has a question? Pascal. Hi, uh, this is Pascal from The Gap. Um, thank you for this presentation. It's insightful. Um, in terms of retail, and when we look at the home body economy, what do you see short-term and long-term? Because our supply chains are global. We, ma we manufacture clothes in Asia, and then we sell it around the world. So, and when you look at this trend of home body economy, clothing, uh, besides for children that are constantly growing and you need to replenish their wardrobe all the time, what, what, what do you think is the trend there? Because, um, you know, being at the Gap, we're global and we produce at a global um, scale, but uh, for most retailers, it's the same, um, they're in the same position as well. Well, so you're, you're asking specifically about children's clothing? No, just clothing and retails in general, because they don't fit in that essential necessarily category. Uh, you don't need as much clothes you, or you don't right. need toys. And I'm just curious. Well, look, she, 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 just to add, she was just curious overall. She used the children as an example of the, a continuous opportunity for retail sales. But as far as overall picture for trending in retail, where do you see that going? Look, uh, as a perfect example, toys hobbies, games. Uh, I mean, you couldn't buy enough Monopoly games as an example. So, uh, so toys and games, those sales, and I see the data every month surging, surging in the lead up to the pandemic during and after. Um, home, anything related to home entertainment or electronics, surging. Uh, but clothing, no. no can I put a caveat on? Can I add on a caveat to that, David? Yeah. Uh, what about in Pascal's case, and say athleisure wear in general? Because uh, I know the Gap brand also encompasses brands like Athleta. Uh, we also have Nike brands that are appealing to yoga clothing and home body lifestyle. Would that be a difference? I don't expect that. Um, I don't expect that uh, I could build a bullish case from the homebody economy theme on on uh, on attire, even related to yoga or uh, you know, or uh, going on your Peloton bike. The reality is that people who can afford to buy nice clothing. Uh, buy the nice clothing because uh, of appearance and appearances are important. Uh, well, if you're not going to be going to the gym, uh, who are you going to be impressing? Uh, so I don't know so much that people are going to be dying to go buy more Lululemon, uh, for example, attire or, or, or the upper end fancy attire. There's no need to because you only buy it uh, to impress people. Uh, and um, because fashion is all about appearance, um, you know we, uh, uh, you know, on, on the uh, in terms of kids, well, the, the kids are going back to school. Uh, so if you're going to say to me about kids apparel, I don't see there's a big negative impact there. But for mom and pa, uh, who are going to be staying home, why are they going to be buying new clothes? Why would they buy new clothes? Why would you buy a new suit? Uh, a significant portion of the population. Uh, now, now, make no mistake. I think that if we ever go back to there, if you want to talk about what is a pre-COVID norm, whatever normal is, yeah, maybe if I went back to the office, I probably maybe I'll buy a new suit. Uh, you might argue actually that so much of us have put on so much weight because we became such good cooks and we didn't <laughs> buy enough Peloton bikes 
that we probably do. Now, seriously, there's a lot of people, you, you're taking a look, people are wearing sweatpants and whatever because they can't get into their jeans. Uh, that's true. So, so, but that's a level shift. So you might go buy a few pairs of jeans, but I'm saying in, in general, uh, there's going to be a much higher percentage of the population working from home where you don't have to get dressed up. Uh, the fact that we can't go into crowds means you can't go into restaurants. A lot of restaurants, you want to be dressed up. I'm not talking about going to, you know, some drive through or going to a fast food restaurant. I think, I think, I think clothing is going to have, um, uh, the longest stretch to recover. It's going to be very difficult. I think Pascal and Al, I think we need some cool shirts for Zoom calls that say, you know, funny things. (laughs) 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 We have time for one more question, guys. We're almost to the bottom. We we can stay here forever. Who's next? Who's the last question? Al, anyone? Pedro? Melissa? Suzanne? I have a question. So, um, we're sitting here with a bunch of global brands and they want to know how they're going to survive. And they, they have employees and, and, you know, merchandise and, and technology and goods and services manufactured all over the world. And they're looking at entry point markets. You mentioned Asia. Any other advice for what markets to enter into if you're one of the lucky groups that you spoke about earlier, consumer staples, big tech, uh, consu- you know, anything in that regard, maybe um, uh, you'd mention, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the, uh, what, I'm so sorry, it's a, te- a technological term, huh? Oh, Peloton and also um, you had yeah. mentioned Just energy. Just any of these, yeah. exactly. There was one, I think it was mentioning, um, there's a term for it, I'm sorry, it's, uh, Anyways, I can't think of it, but you know where I'm going with this. What would you recommend? What would, what advice would you give to this group in that regards? Well, look, I, I think I, I said before that, uh, you know, as it pertains to uh, our world and this, I, I think Asia is, is, is going to have a much more vibrant consumer um, than, and much more broadly based. Uh, I think that if we're talking about, you know, what the fundamental change is going to be. I said before, think about a world where we went into over half the households didn't have enough savings. It's going to be higher savings. There's going to be therefore a lower pool of consumer spending than what we've been accustomed to in the past 20 or 30 years. Uh, We also have to think about uh, what's the world going to look like? Uh, How are these deficits and debts going to be paid? If they're not paid by higher taxes, how will they get paid? Um, we either are going to have a world where taxes have to go up uh, or a world where these debts have to get monetized, which means much higher inflation. Uh, And so that might be good news for pricing power if we get higher inflation, uh, but it also means that your costs are going to go up. Uh, So it's not clear that it's a a win-win for everybody. Uh, The point uh, I'll make this uh, marketing obviously is extremely important. That's just a glib remark. But I'd say that uh, you have to bolster your whatever you do, however good you think you are, your online service footprint has to be a continued priority. A continued priority yeah. uh, as to how you're going to be selling to a, a consumer environment that is less mobile than it was previously. Uh, so that's what I would say. That's what I would say. There's a lot of, whether it's uh, uh, mall real estate or almost any real estate outside of single family housing, people are going to be shopping online more and more. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is really uh, um, uh, the, the trend that you want to, that you want to focus on and then how you advertise. So I'd say that, um, that that's really what's going to be dominating. I think when I think of retail, uh, I think of my own business, uh, and I'm not in retail, but I'm in information services, um, uh, uh, continuously improving your online presence is going to be paramount for your success. So get your brand in order. There's always Sasha if you need help. Yeah. And um, <laughs> get your brand in order and make sure 
that your online presence is solid. Yes. And without further ado, Lara. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us in this month's episode of All Things Global. And thank you so much, David Rosenberg. This was wonderful. Thank you for joining us today. And I want to thank everyone here and big round of applause. Thank you, everyone, for joining us in the live audience to represent these amazing global brands. And finally, a thank you to our sponsor, Visatech. And a quick word about Visatech, it's a multilingual services provider that works with some of the world's most iconic brands to make multilingual versions of their products. We're known for quality and technical innovation, and we're also known for our academic focus. One can say a nerdy focus. This All Things Global series aims to connect this global community with knowledge and ideas to support a successful global strategy. Please reach out to Suzanne or me or any of your friends at Visitech to talk anytime on LinkedIn or anywhere. And join us for the next episode. It's going to be a total shift in topic. It'll be super interesting. We're super excited. Come find out about us. And thank you once more to everyone. Thank you so much. Thank Bye. you. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Uh, Take care.